This video is part of an audiobook series featuring Outliers, The Story of Success by Malcolm Gladwell. For more audiobooks, please visit my YouTube channel or my website for downloads. Part 2. Legacy. Chapter 6. Harlan, Kentucky. In the southeastern corner of Kentucky, in the stretch of the Appalachian Mountains known as, known as the Cumberland Plateau, lies a small town called Harlan. The Cumberland Plateau is a wild and mountainous region of flat-topped ridges, mountain walls 500 to 1,000 feet high, and narrow valleys, some wide enough only for a one-lane road and a creek. When the area was first settled, the plateau was covered in a dense primeval, primeval forest. Giant tulip poplars grew in the coves and at the foot of the hills, some with trunks as wide as seven or eight feet in diameter. Alongside them were white oaks, beeches, maples, walnuts, sycamores, birches, willows, cedars, pines, and hemlocks, all enmeshed in a lattice of wild grapevine, comprising one of the greatest assortment of forest trees in the northern hemisphere. On the ground were bears and mountain lions and rattlesnakes. In the treetops, an astonishing ar array of squirrels. And beneath the soil was one thick seam after another of coal. Harlan County was founded in 1819 by eight immigrant families from the northern regions of the British Isles. They had come to Virginia in the 18th century and then moved west into the Appalachians in search of land. The county was never wealthy. For its first 100 years, it was thinly populated, rarely numbering more than 10,000 people. The first settlers kept pigs and herded sheep on the hillsides, scratching out a living on small farms in the valleys. They made whiskey in backyard stills and felled trees, floating them down the Cumberland River in the spring when the water was high. Until well into the 19th, sorry, into the 20th century, getting to the nearest train station was a two-day wagon trip. The only way out of town was up Pine Mountain, which was nine steep miles on a road that turned on occasion into no more than a muddy, rocky trail. Harlan was a remote and strange place, unknown by the larger society around it, and it might well have remained so, but for the fact that two of the town's founding families, the Howards and the Turners, did not get along. The patriarch of the Howard clan was Samuel Howard. He built the town courthouse and the jail. His counterpart was William Turner, who owned a tavern and two general stores. Once, a storm blew down the fence to the Turner property, and a neighbor's cow wandered onto the land. William Turner's grandson, Devil Jim, shot the cow dead. The neighbor was too terrified to press charges and fled the country. Another time, a man tried to open a competitor to the Turner's general store. The Turners had a word with him, so he closed the store and moved to Indiana. These were not pleasant people. One night, Wicks Howard and little Bob Turner, the grandsons of Samuel and William respectively, played against each other in a game of poker. Each accused the other of cheating. They fought. In the following day, they met in street, in the street, and after a flurry of gunshots, little Bob Turner lay dead with a shotgun blast in the chest. A group of Turners went to the Howard's general store and spoke roughly to Mrs. Howard. She was insulted and told her son, Wills Howard, in the following week, she, he exchanged gunfire with another of Turner's grandsons, young Will Turner, on the road to Hagen, Virginia. That night, one of the Turners and a friend attacked the Howard home. The two families then clashed outside the Harlan courthouse. 
In the gunfire, Will Turner was shot and killed. A contingent of Howards then went to see Mrs. Turner, the mother of Will and little Bob, to ask for a truce. She declined, saying, you can't wipe out that blood, pointing to the dirt where her son had died. Things quickly went from bad to worse. Wills Howard ran into little George Turner near Sulphur Springs and shot him dead. The Howards ambushed three friends of the Turners, the Kaywoods, killing all of them. A posse was sent out in search of the Howards. In the resulting gunfight, six more were killed or wounded. Wills Howard heard that the Turners were after him, and he and a friend rode into Harlan and attacked the Turner home. Riding back, the Howards were ambushed. In the fighting, another person died. Wills Howard rode to George Turner's home and fired at him, but missed and killed another man. A posse surrounded the Howard home. There was another gunfight and more dead. The county was in an uproar, and I think you get the picture. There were places in 19th century America where people lived in harmony, but Harlan, Kentucky was not one of them. Stop that, Will Turner's mother snapped at him when he staggered home, howling in pain after being shot in the courthouse gun battle with the Howards. Die like a man, like your brother did. She belonged to a world so acquainted with fatal gunshots that she had certain expectations about how they ought to be endured. Will shut his mouth, and he died. Section 2. Suppose you were sent to Harlan in the late 19th century to investigate the causes of the Howard-Turner feud. You lined up every participating or surviving participant and interviewed them as carefully as you could. You subpoenaed documents and took depositions and pored over court records until you had put together a detailed and precise accounting of each stage in the deadly quarrel. How much would you know? The answer is not much. You'd learn that there were two families in Harlan who didn't like each other, and you'd confirm that Wills Howard, who was responsible for an awful lot of the violence, probably belonged behind bars. What happened in Harlan wouldn't become clear until you look at the violence from a much broader perspective. The first critical fact about Harlan is that at the same time that the Howards and the Turners were killing one another, there were almost identical clashes in other small towns up and down the Appalachians. In the famous Hatfield-McCoy feud on the West Virginia-Kentucky border not far from Harlan, several people were killed in a cycle of violence that stretched out over 20 years. In the French Eversole feud in Perry County, Kentucky, 12 died, six of them killed by Bad Tom Smith. A man, John Ed Pierce writes in Days of Darkness, who was just dumb enough to be fearless, just bright enough to be dangerous, and a dead shot. The Martin Tolliver feud in Rowan County, Kentucky, in the mid-1880s, featured three gunfights, three ambushes, and two house attacks, and ended in a two-hour gun battle involving a hundred armed men. The Baker-Howard feud in Clay County, Kentucky, began in 1806, with an elk hunting party gone bad, and didn't end until the 1930s, when a couple of Howards killed three Bakers in an ambush. And these were just the well-known feuds. The Kentucky legislator Harry, Harry Cottle once looked in a Circuit County clerk's office in one Cumberland Plateau town and found 1,000 murder indictments stretching from the end of the Civil War in the 1860s to the beginning of the 20th century. And this, for a region that never numbered more than 15,000 people, and where many violent acts never even made it to the indictment stage. Cottle writes of a murder trial in Breathitt County, or Bloody Breathitt as it became known, that ended abruptly when the defendant's father, a man of about 50 with huge handlebar whiskers and two immense pistols, walked up to the judge and grabbed his gavel. Quote, 
the feudist wrapped the bench and announced, Court's over, and everybody can go. We ain't going to have any court here this term. The red-faced judge hastily acquiesced in this extraordinary order and promptly left town. When court convened at the next term, the court and sheriff were bolstered by 60 militiamen, but by then the defendant was not available for trial. He had been slain from ambush, end quote. When one family fights with another, it's a feud. When lots of families fight with another in identical little towns up and down the same mountain range, it's a pattern. What was the cause of the Appalachian pattern? Over the years, many potential explanations have been examined and debated, and the consensus appears to be that the region was plagued by a particularly virulent strain of what sociologists call a culture of honor. Cultures of honor tend to take root in highlands and other marginally fertile areas, such as Sicily or the mountainous Basque regions of Spain. If you live on some rocky mountainside, the explanation goes, you can't farm. You probably raise goats or sheep, and the kind of culture that grows up around being a herdsman is very different from the culture that grows up around growing crops. The survival of a farmer depends on the cooperation of others in the community. But a herdsman is off by himself. Farmers also don't have to worry that their livelihood would be stolen in the night, because crops can't be easily stolen unless, of course, a thief wants to go to the trouble of harvesting an entire field on his own. But the herdsman does have to worry. He is under constant threat of ruin through the loss of his animals. He has to be aggressive. He has to make it clear through his words and deeds that he is not weak. He has to be willing to fight in response to even the slightest challenge to his reputation. And that's what a culture of honor means. It's a world where a man's reputation is at the center of his livelihood and self-worth. Quote, The critical moment is the development of the young shepherd's reputation is his first quarrel, says the ethnographer J.K. Campbell, writing of one herding culture in Greece. Quarrels are necessarily public. They may occur in the coffee shop, the village square, or most frequently on a grazing boundary where a curse or a stone aimed at one of his straying sheep by another shepherd is an insult which inevitably requires a violent response. End quote. So why was Appalachia the way it was? It was because of where the original inhabitants of the region came from. The so-called American backcountry states, from the Pennsylvania border south and west through Virginia and West Virginia, Kentucky and Tennessee, North Carolina and South Carolina, and the northern end of Alabama and Georgia, were settled, were settled overwhelmingly by immigrants from one of the world's most ferocious cultures of honor. They were the Scotch-Irish, that is, from the lowlands of Scotland, the northern counties of England, and Ulster in Northern Ireland. The borderlands, as this region was known, were remote and lawless ter territories that had been fought over for hundreds of years. The people of the region were steeped in violence. They were herdsmen, scraping out a living on rocky and infertile land. They were clannish, responding to the harshness and turmoil of their environment by forming tight family bonds and placing loyalty to blood above everything else. And when they immigrated to North America, they moved into the American interior, a remote, lawless, rocky, and marginally fertile place like Harlan that allowed them to reproduce in the new world the culture of honor they had created in the old. Quote, to the first settlers, the American backcountry was a dangerous environment, just as the British borderlands had been, says historian David Hackett Fisher in Albion Seed. 
Much of the Southern Highlands were debatable lands in the border sense of a contested territory without established government or the rule of law. The borderers were more at home than others in this anarchic environment, which was well suited to their family system, their warrior ethic, their farming and herding economy, their attitudes toward land and wealth, and their ideas of work and power. So well adapted was the border culture to this environment that other ethnic groups tended to copy it. The ethos of the North British borders came to dominate this dark and bloody ground, partly by force of numbers, but mainly because it was a means of survival in a raw and dangerous world. End quote. The triumph of culture of honor to explain why the, the triumph of a culture of honor helps to explain why the pattern of criminality in the American South has always been so distinctive. Murder rates are higher than in the, in the rest of the country, but crimes of property and stranger crimes, like mugging, are lower. As the sociologist John Shelton Reed has written, quote, the homicides in which the South seems to specialize are those in which someone is being killed by someone he, or often she, knows, for reasons that both the killer and the victim understand. The statistics show that the Southerner who can avoid arguments and adultery is as safe as any other American, and probably safer, end quote. In the backcountry, violence wasn't for economic gain. It was personal. You fought over your honor. Many years ago, the Southern newspaperman Hodding Carter told the story of how a young man he served on a jury. Of how, as a young man, he served on a jury. As Reed describes it, quote, The case before the jury involved an irascible gentleman who lived next door to a filling station. For several months, he had been the butt of various jokes played by the attendants and the miscellaneous loafers who hung around the station, despite his warnings and his notorious short temper. One morning, he emptied both barrels of his shotgun at his tormentors, killing one, maiming another permanently, and wounding a third. When the jury was pulled by the incredulous judge, Carter was the only jury who recorded his vote as guilty. As one of the others put it, he wouldn't have been much of a man if he hadn't shot them fellows, end quote. Only in a culture of honor would it have occurred to the erasable gentleman that shooting someone was an appropriate response to a personal insult. And only in a culture of honor would it have occurred to a jury that murder, under those circumstances, was not a crime. I realize that we are often wary of making these kinds of broad generalizations about different cultural groups, and with good reason. This is the form that racial and ethnic stereotypes take. We want to believe that we are not prisoners of our ethnic histories. But the simple truth is that if you want to understand what happened in those small towns in Kentucky in the 19th century, you have to go back into the past, and not just one or two generations, you have to go back two or three or four hundred years to a country on the other side of the ocean and look closely at what exactly the people in a very specific geographic area of that country did for a living. The culture of honor hypothesis says that it matters where you're from, not just in terms of where you grew, where you grew up or where your parents grew up, but in terms of where your great-grandparents and your great-great-grandparents grew up, and even where your great-great-great-grandparents grew up. That is a strange and powerful fact. It's just the beginning, though, because upon closer examination, cultural legacies turn out to be even stranger and more powerful than that. Section 3. In the early 1990s, two psychologists at the University of Michigan, Dove Cohen and Richard Nisbet, decided to conduct an experiment on the culture of honor. 
they knew that what happened in places like Harlan in the 19th century was, in all likelihood, a product of the patterns laid, out, laid down in the English borderlands centuries before. But their interest was in the present day. Was it possible to find remnants of the culture of honor in the modern era? So they decided to gather together a group of young men and insult them. Cohen says, quote, We sat down and tried to figure out what is the insult that would go to the heart of an 18 to 20 year old's brain. It didn't take too long to come up with calling someone an asshole. End quote. The experiment went like this. The social sciences building at the University of Michigan has a long, narrow hallway in the basement lined with filing cabinets. The young men were called into a classroom, one by one, and asked to fill out a questionnaire. Then they were told to drop off the questionnaire at the end of the hallway and return to the classroom, a simple, seemingly innocent academic exercise. For half the young men, that was it. They were the control group. For the other half, there was a catch. As they walked down the hallway with their questionnaire, a man, a confederate of the experimenters, walked past them and pulled out a drawer in one of the filing cabinets. The already narrow hallway now became even narrower. As the young men tried to squeeze by, the confederate looked up, annoyed. He slammed the filing cabinet drawer shut, jostled the young men with his shoulder, and in a low but audible voice, said the trigger word, asshole. Cohen and Nisbet wanted to measure, as precisely as possible, what being called that word meant. They looked at the faces of their subjects and rated how much anger they saw. They shook the young man's hands to see if their grip was firmer than usual. They took saliva samples from the students, both before and after the insult, to see if being called an asshole caused their levels of testosterone and cortisol, the hormones that drive arousal and aggression, to go up. Finally, they asked the students to read the following story and supply a conclusion. Quote, It had only been about 20 minutes since they had arrived at the party when Jill pulled Steve aside, obviously bothered about something. What's wrong? asked Steve. It's Larry. I mean, he knows that you and I are engaged, but he's already made two passes at me tonight. Jill walked into the crowd, and Steve decided to keep his eye on Larry. Sure enough, within five minutes, Larry was reaching over and trying to kiss Jill. End quote. If you've been insulted, are you more likely to imagine Steve doing something violent to Larry? The results were unequivocal. There were, there were clear differences in how the young men responded to being called a bad name. For some, the insult changed their behavior, and for some it didn't. The deciding factor in how they re reacted wasn't how emotionally secure they were, or whether they were intellectuals or jocks, or whether they were physically imposing or not. What mattered, and I think what you can guess, you can guess where this is headed, was where they were from. Most of the young men from the northern part of the United States treated the incident with amusement. They laughed it off. Their handshakes were unchanged. Their levels of cortisol actually went down, as if they were unconsciously trying to diffuse their own anger. Only a few of them had Steve get violent with Larry. But the Southerners, oh my, they were angry. Their cortisol and testosterone jumped. Their handshakes got firm. Steve was all over Larry. Cohen said, we even played this game of chicken. We sent the students back down the hallways, and around the corner comes another confederate. The hallway is blocked, so there's only room for one of them to pass. The guy we used was 6'3", 250 pounds. He used to play college football and was now working as a bouncer in a college bar. He was walking down the hall in business mode, the way you walk through a bar when you're about to break up a fight. 
The, the question was, how close do they get to the bouncer before they get out of the way? And believe me, they always get out of the way. End quote. For the Northerners, there was almost no effect. They got out of the way five or six feet beforehand, whether they had been insulted or not. The Southerners, by contrast, were downright deferential in normal circumstances, stepping aside with more than nine feet to go. But if they had been insulted, they stepped aside with less than two feet to go. Call a Southerner an asshole, and he's itching for a fight. What Cohen and Nisbet were seeing in that long haul was the culture of honor in action. The Southerners were reacting like Wicks Howard did when little Bob Turner accused him of cheating at poker. Section 4. That study is strange, isn't it? It's one thing to conclude that groups of people living in circumstances pretty similar to their ancestors act a lot like their ancestors. But those Southerners in the hallway study weren't living in circumstances similar to their British ancestors. They didn't even necessarily have British ancestors. They just happened to have grown up in the South. None of them were herdsmen, nor were their parents herdsmen. They were living in the late 19th century, or sorry, late 20th century, not the late 19th century. They were students at the University of Michigan in one of the no most northernmost states in America, which meant they were sufficiently cosmopolitan to travel hundreds of miles from the South to go to college. And none of that mattered. They still acted like they were living in 19th century Harlan, Kentucky. Quote, your median student in those studies comes from a family making over $100,000, and that's in 1990 dollars, says Cohen. The Southerners we see this effect with aren't kids who come from the hills of Appalachia. They are more likely to be the sons of upper-middle management Coca-Cola executives in Atlanta. And that's the big question. Why should we get this effect with them? Why should we get it year, hundreds of years later? Why are these suburban Atlanta kids acting like they are out on the ethos of the frontier? End quote. Cultural legacies are powerful forces. They have deep roots and long lives. They persist generation after generation, virtually intact, even as the economic and social and demographic conditions that spawned them have banished. And they play such a role in directing attitudes and behaviors that we cannot make sense out of our world without them. Footnote. How are these kinds of attitudes passed down from the generation to generation? Through social heritage or social heritance. Think of the way accents persist over time. David Hackett Fisher points out that the original settlers of Appalachia said, quote, war for where, thar for there, hard for hired, critter for creature, sartin for certain, agoin for going, hit for it, he it for hit, far for fire, deef for deaf, pison for poison, naked for naked, each for itch, bush for bush, wrestle for wrestle, chaw for chew, push for push, shet for shut, bait for bat, be it for bee, narrer for narrow, winder for window, witter for widow, and youngins for young one. End quote. Recognize that it's the same way many rural people in the Appalachians still speak today. Whatever mechanism passes on speech patterns probably passes on behavioral and emotional patterns as well. End of footnote. So far in Outliers, we've seen that success arises out of a steady accumulation of advantages, when and where you are born, what your parents did for a living, and what the circumstances of your upbringing were all made 
where we all make a significant difference in how well you do in the world. The question for the second part of Outliers is whether the traditions and attitudes we inherit from our forebears can play the same role. Can we learn something about why people succeed and how to make people better at what they do by taking cultural legacies seriously? I tend to think that we can. Thank you for watching. Please like, subscribe, and visit my channel for more exciting content.